All right. Okay, so welcome back to Chariot Tech Chat Tuesdays. This is number 63 uh, for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. I'm Ken Ripple. Sujan Kapadia. And today we... I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we always do this. And on, our guest today is Avi Grimm, uh, founder of Graceful Dev. So I have a little blurb here on you. Uh, let's see if we can use this as a good intro. So Avdi Grimm is a professional developer with experience across a wide range of platforms, embedded systems to enterprise applications. He's a Ruby hero for service to the Ruby community, a consulting pair programmer, writes about coding practices at Graceful Dev, and also hosts a set of what you call audio thoughts. Is that a, basically is a podcast, right? The Cash Flush? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, my occasional podcast. Yeah, we have the same thing. Every once in a while, it's, it's, it's hard to keep a podcast stream going constantly. But uh, so the cast flush, I noticed that on your website uh, at offd.codes as well. Spoken at many conferences, including twice at least at ETE. And it's a pleasure to welcome them to the podcast today. So let me start off just with a real simple, basic thing. Let's start with your background. Um, when did you first get started programming? Because I'm curious, like, what led you in? Yeah, um, so... Uh, what led me in? Okay, so uh, programming was kind of a little bit in the air for me um, growing up. Uh, my dad was an engineer kind of at the cusp of of hardware and software engineering. And, you know, while he didn't like, he didn't teach me to program, but it was definitely, you know, it's one of those things where what you see around you is what you, you know, feel is like possible and doable as a, as a person. Um, yep. And so it was kind of relatively easy, I think, for me to fall into that. That was a, a kind of a privilege that I had. And... Um, and also, um, he did wind up introducing me to my first uh, full-time software job um, back in '98, um, I think it was, um, which was it was working for a big defense contractor, mostly working on like um, air traffic control systems and networking middleware and embedded stuff and things like of that nature. Yeah, that that in the air thing. I know it's like I do a podcast because my father was in radio, mm -hmm. so I was always around, you know, recording engineers and studios and stuff. So I've always been into that kind of thing. So I get that. Um, so what was the first computer you programmed out of curiosity? Was it, a, was it a basic interpreter on something or? Oh my gosh. I mean, at some point, I, I know that at some point as a kid, there were, I probably punched some basic out of a magazine into like an IBM XT or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, at some point later, I had like a, a 386 that my dad got me. Um, and I think I taught myself Rex on there because for some reason we were running OS2 because we couldn't be like normal people <laughs> DOS and Windows. And so I I don't know. I taught myself Rex, which I, I remember exactly none of at this point. Uh -huh. Nobody else oh, has no. ever heard of it. I have. Oh, because it was nice. on the it was on the Amiga. Okay. So I was a big Amiga geek at the time, and they brought Rex out. I paid 10 minutes of attention to it because I'm like, ah, I don't know what I'm gonna do with this thing. Nice. But, uh, but yeah, Rex was one of the things they ported from IBM. I'm like, interesting choice. So, well, that's cool. So, so all right. So we have you here, obviously, not to talk about the old days. And I, I know I set you up that way. But more <laughs> to talk about uh, some of the topics you brought up at, at the great talk you did um, with Jessica Kerr at mm -hmm. Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise um, on feedback loops. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so, so why don't we just talk at the highest level you really enjoy programming in languages where you can kind of ask it questions through a REPL, right? Yes. Yes. And I think, and, and I'm, I'm fairly confident that I'm not the only one who enjoys this. So <laughs> one of the things that I talk about in this talk about, about REPLs all the way up um, is, is a little bit of the history of programming where we went in a fairly short period, we went from, um, you know, your feedback loop was you punch a program into a stack of cards and then you get on a train and you go to Cambridge or something and, and you, you, uh, you, know, you wait your turn to run it through a computer and then it says, oop, bug. And so you spend, you know, you, you go home on the train and you're looking through your cards trying to figure out how you're going to adjust your program for, the, for two weeks from now when you get to try it again. You know, in fairly short order, we went from that to, what was it, like late 60s, um, maybe even early, um, you know, we had a, um, a PDP-1 running Lisp where, you know, you could punch in some Lisp code onto that, that typewriter, literally a typewriter, but it would take over as soon as you finished writing that, that first line of Lisp, it would take over and it would 
type out the result of that right to you. Um, and then later on, we, we got into these wonderful distributed, not just, well, these mainframe systems that you could come, you know, you could, you could teletype into from all over the country and, and get like results of your basic program in like a second. And, you know, and, and these were incredibly like, we've lost a lot of this history at this point. We, a lot of people, you know, these days feels like, like, you know, computing started with the personal computer or with, or with the, the internet. Um, but we've kind of lost this prehistory of, of incredibly interactive, um, rich, um, and social uh, digital citizenry that occurred, uh, that, was, that was happening with these, uh, these amazing mainframe systems. And, and in, in many ways, there was almost like, a, a, like I almost came into computing in kind of a, a, a dark age or like a, um, an ice age that, that happened after this when now it's like you're just on your own machine here and, and you're compiling and you're waiting for compiles and <laughs> you, know, you have these slow feedback loops. So in, in many ways, uh, you know, part of my thesis is that we've recognized since almost the beginning of computing how satisfying it is to have... Um, to have a feedback loop that matches the pace of your questions and your next thought. And we keep trying to get back to that state of grace. And periodically, I think we, we kind of get close to it again. For sure. Good. This is a topic like so near and dear to my heart. Um, just at a fundamental level, I mean, feedback loops are how we interact and react to the world, right? It's like a high level abstraction that models the universe. So, how we perceive reality, how we learn effectively. It's really all governed by feedback loops. So I, you know, I get surprised that it's not a fundamental underpinning of an engineering or a computer science education. Like it's not really, and I go back to how I learned it and how I was taught it. And it's not something that was ever brought up as a first class concept. And I think that is at the, the detriment of folks wanting to get into this field and learn it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, honestly, that was, so that was, that was the genesis of this talk. Um, so, um, you know, like you mentioned, I, um, I run a site called Graceful Dev, where I have many courses for developers who want to kind of level up their, their um, practice. And, um, and, you know, what I kind of came up with as the, the or the, the genesis of this talk was asking myself the question, what is sort of the overarching theme? Um, what does it mean to be a graceful developer? What is the sort of backbone that I want to tie all of this specific concrete knowledge into? And really, what it comes down to for me, being graceful as a developer is about um, participating in these feedback loops and about um, honing your feedback loops, you know, um, and, and also about seeing yourself as situated in a set of sort of concentric feedback loops all the way from, you know, a line of code at a REPL, you know, all the way up to the major business pivots that, that you're part of and that you're supporting. And these are all feedback loops. They all happen at different levels, at different scopes, at different paces. Um, but that's all we're doing, you know, and, and seeing yourself in those loops all the way up, I think is a really powerful way of, of contextualizing yourself as a developer. Yeah, I have to, I, I, as an aside, I just, every time I hear the name Graceful Dev for your company, my brain keeps inserting Grateful Dead. <laughs> it's an awesome name. I just love it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I've had a few people say that. Um, honestly, it was not at all on my mind. When I, when I, <laughs> um, I just have a, a, a personal um, fascination with the concept of grace. But, mm -hmm. um, but yes, that's definitely, people have pointed it out to me since then. <laughs> It's, it's funny. It feels like it's, I'm sorry. It feels like cheating almost when you first learn how to work with the REPL and how to communicate and think as fast, get the answers as fast as you can think through them. Yeah. Um, I remember many years ago, and I'll step out of the way on this, but many years ago, uh, early on in my uh, Java engineering, I learned about like scripting and being shell. So I was able to like create a little thing in a servlet to let me run scripts against the servlet container. And I could interrogate everything and, and try stuff and everything out of that fell into like things I could write as tests and all that kind of stuff. So like, but it felt like cheating. Like, like you said, it wasn't taught in school, you know, it wasn't a concept, but I mean, it had been there since the fifties with Lisp yeah, and fourth and programming languages like that. It's just kind of shocking that like it really wasn't enforced because it was almost like a, a toy concept to computer scientists at the time. Yeah, but it actually turns out to be, you know, like, like you say, it's, it's a very early um, innovation. And I think we've been kind of chasing that for a long time. And I, I really see some of the innovations that have happened in d software development since then as kind of being 
really returns to that mode. Um, you know, in particular for me, uh, I came of age in an era, like just after I got into programming, a few years later, we kind of had the, the real Cambrian explosion of, of scripting languages where suddenly that was a big deal, you know, or what they called scripting languages. And what made, one of the things that made scripting languages so exciting was the fact that they all came with a REPL. They all, you know, if you went into their tutorial, they'd be like, well, first open up the REPL. Um, and, um, you know, and then um, start typing these commands in and see what happens. And this was like, you know, coming from, from a lot of um, compiled, you know, waiting for compiles and integration cycles, um, it was revelatory. You know, and then around the same time, you know, some sort of programming counterculturalists almost, uh, you know, Ward Cunningham and Kent Beck were were saying, what if we, you know, turned up this, the testing cycle to 11 and came up with this concept of test driven uh, design or test driven development. And that, again, was a way of sort of fitting these tight feedback loops into even compiled languages like Java and C++. I did some of my first TDD in C++, believe it or not. Yeah, my, my, my most pleasurable experiences, I remember years ago developing, even up even today is um, kind of tight knit extreme programming teams. I mean, the, like you, you mentioned concentric circles of feedback loops, I, I think it was a great metaphor because I felt, I literally felt that when we were on an XP team with the business analysts there. And it, it was probably the most flow I've, I've ever felt. Um, I guess, you know, I, a question I have and kind of curious to really get your thoughts is, so, you know, I went from, you know, basic to turbo basic to Pascal to Java C plus plus, like you went from something that was instant feedback basic and allowed you to do things like play music right directly to the screen, do graphics to like, Java and C that felt a lot more separated from that. Then later on back to JavaScript and REPL based languages where you feel like, okay, a REPL is like, it's made for a human. Like if, when you're not using a REPL, you're writing for a compiler. When you're using yes. a REPL, you feel like you're writing for yourself. Yes. I feel like I'm losing that connection again with cloud development because mm -hmm. there's like huge activation energy you have to go through to get stuff up and running on the cloud to do distributed computing and, so I have a hard time feeling that flow when I'm doing stuff on like, you know, AWS, for example. I'm curious, yeah, you know, absolutely. counter to that, how do you grapple with that? Um, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, I, and I think you're absolutely right, is that we're moving into another phase of, okay, we're get, sort of increasing the scope again, we're increasing the size of what we work with, and we're introducing new latencies and new delays in our feedback loops. And it's difficult, I think, um, uh, I think a point that um, that my partner and, and co-speaker on this talk at, in, in Philly, um, Jessica Kerr, uh, a point that, that she likes to make a lot is that one of the ways we kind of bring her back around to that REPL experience is by really leaning into distributed tracing and observability um, and really, you know, instrumenting our code so that it is, you know, so we have those distributed traces and then learning how to use uh, tools like Honeycomb et cetera, to really like dig into that data and kind of, kind of ask questions about the, the recent past. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that was a great um, talk uh, that you gave on, you know, observability, distributed tracing that I felt was really good for people that were non-developers um, to understand like the, you know, like how she kind of went through the, how you're telling a story. Yeah. Um, and my takeaway was like, Oh, if you want to feel your code, touch it, smell it like distributed, Tracing observability kind of gives you, you know, your five senses back around your code. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That plus if you do things in containers, for example, you know, then you've got like the ability to take that complex platform, at least run some semblance of it locally and interrogate it on your computer instead of waiting for a huge build. Hopefully that it's the container itself when you launch quickly if you do it right. So. Yeah, I mean, and I do a lot of work in development containers these days. As a matter of fact, I do all of my work in containers these days because as a consultant, um, you know, I need to be able to switch between very different environments very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and that does help. I do think, though, that part of coping with this new world is really it's trying to do as much as we can in production 
and, you know, recognize that, you know, that, that we are not going to reproduce these environments on our local machines as much as we might try. It's one of those mm -hmm. things where the, you know, when you try to get that last 20% of, of verisimilitude of, of likeness to the real world, you wind up pouring 80% of effort into it and you That's never okay. actually get there. You never get there. There's always something that, that fails in development, works in production. There's something that fails in production, works in development. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I like about, about the approach of using more distributed tracing is just, just saying, okay, you know, we get it. The only, the only thing like production is production. Let's understand as much as we can about production. Very fair point. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I guess on, on, on that point, uh, how do you, how do you approach that initial, I, I, so I always find this, it's that initial hurdle of getting everything set up. So you can start with containers, you can start with like a templated project. So if I'm a new developer, um, you know, to me, one of the nice things about a tight feedback loop is it really flattens or makes a learning curve a lot less steep. And I think that's like one of the biggest impacts of a feedback loop. You can take something complex and make it a lot easier for people to, to grasp. Um, again, I think with cloud development, um, there are a lot of strategies to, I guess, make that better, but it still seems there's a lot of steps to get to that. I mean, I definitely find having Docker containers helps me mm -hmm. a lot. Um, but for many developers, that's a big leap. Like you have to have a certain level of understanding just to kind of grok Docker containers and Linux and things. So do you, do you like these movements around like dev containers and code spaces? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, actually, will you give me um, just one second? I need to step away sure. for one second. I'll be right back. Yeah. Okay, I'm back. Um, so I personally, um, I love dev containers. Um, like I said, you know, as a consultant, I need to switch, you know, be between very different configurations rapidly. Um, and I also, the thing that I, but the, the thing that I love about them, regardless of whether you're in that consultant area space or whether you're just mostly working on one thing at a time is, you know, I've consulted on some projects where like one of the things that I left behind was a dev container and then, and, and, and they'll tell me that like, this is the, this is the best thing because like our, the next developer that comes along, um, gets like, um, you know, gets, gets up and running in a day instead of a week. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And it's, it's kind of documented and repeatable by definition. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, uh... yeah. So it's, 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 you know, the way I think of it, it's reproducible development and, mm -hmm. you know, we get to, it, it gives us a way of documenting all the little finicky nitpicks about environment setup and, um, and everything. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's much more transferable and it really lends itself to that, um, that, you know, to the feedback loop. Um, it lends itself to accelerating that particular loop and it lets us transfer. I really, really like executable doc documentation. Um, you know, I think that any kind of project documentation that isn't executable in some ways tends to rot really fast. It tends to get out of date because nobody really notices. And having having the project set up be entirely executable, you know, when something breaks, you, you go and fix it and you, and then you commit that fix. And, um, it lets you kind of, as you build, you know, part of our feedback loop, part of our development loop is building up little tools, building up little scripts and things. Um, and, um, and it's like so useful to be able to make those transferable in a way that just works. So can you, can you loop back on executable documentation for people who aren't that familiar with it? Yeah. So um, executable documentation is basically just the idea of, okay, we could write a readme. We could like write down what we just learned about this process, or we could try to find a way to encode what we learned in a way that we can run. And there's a lot of, that takes a lot of forms. Uh, a form that I just did the other day with a team that I'm consulting with was we, had to do a lot of research to figure out how to how to remove um, permission grants from a particular OS2 provider. 
and it was not at all clear how to do it. We had to like dig around a lot. And we almost got to the point where we're like, okay, we're going to like document the, th the things we learned with some links to websites um, in the commit message. And that's going to be it. And then we were like, no, we're going to spend a little bit longer. We're going to write a script for removing these, these permission grants. And at every level, if something fails, we're going to output something useful from that script that says, have you tried this? And then we put that in our project scripts directory. And, you know, it's, you know, the, the knowledge will still probably rot at some point because somebody won't run that for a while. But yeah. it's just like just the fact that we know it ran once like this isn't a readme, you know, some stuff that we dumped into a readme that probably is missing a step. It worked. It's something that we actually used once. And so mm -hmm. there's some confidence there that if we tweak it, if to match the new reality, if we rebase on reality, as Jess would say, um, <laughs> I like that. rebase on the world, then uh, then it'll work again. And so, there, it, you know, it gives you this sort of stable foundation. Awesome. Um, I, I wonder, you know, since, you know, you teach quite a number of students in a lot of different courses, um, have you come across particularly powerful metaphors or analogies to some of this stuff? So, you know, I, I watch my daughter learn and play piano and, you know, music in general or art sculpting, you know, inherently high feedback is instantaneous um, visualization and feedback of what you're doing. And to me, that's like kind of the holy grail, of, you know, getting programming closer to the feeling of sculpting. Um, to me, mm. you know, that's like a you get in that state of flow where you actually feel like you're sculpting your code. It's really hard to achieve that. And when you get it, it's the most fulfilling thing. So I'm curious if you if there's certain patterns or things maybe outside of the normal computer science discipline that you apply when you're teaching. Um, um yeah, I, I love metaphors and I find that like usually they just sort of come to me in the moment. And whenever anybody <laughs> asks me for one, I, I stumble. I don't have it. Yeah. Um, I know the feeling. I'm like you that way. <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot. No, no, it's fine. You know, um, there are a lot of interesting metaphors that we could talk about when it comes to feedback loops. And it depends on like what aspect, you know, for, for programming in general, for a long time, I really kind of, I kind of uh, glommed onto a gardening metaphor. Uh, I think that programming in many ways feels like gardening because it is a, it is a, you're working with a complex system. It is a system that develops on its own outside of you. It's not, you know, as much as we might like to think otherwise, we don't, control all that the world keeps moving out from under our feet and other people are doing other things. And, and so it's an, it's one of those systems that we have an influence on, but we don't have control over. And, you know, we can just do a little bit every day to kind of influence it in the right direction. Um, lately, I'm starting to think of my gardening metaphor as a little bit limited though, because it's still a kind of an individualist, um, focus on like, okay, this is my garden and I am making it into, you know, my lovely garden. And really real software that matters to people isn't like that. Uh, it's, I think, more like a farm. And my, my absolute favorite podcast right now, really the only one that I listen to at the moment is Dr. Sarah Tabor's podcast, where she talks about farming, where she talks about the history of farming and the science of farming. And uh, I'm not a farmer. I'm only even like the most casual possible of gardeners. But this, the, it turns out that, you know, farming influences so much of the world around us and so many of the, even like the metaphors that we use, um, you know, so many of the metaphors are particularly in, in the world of like Silicon Valley software companies are based on sort of the, the homesteading model and the, you know, the, the blazing into the wilderness model that, that um, we don't really interrogate all the time. And she has some fascinating things to, to say about how like, over the whole course of history, individual family farms have actually never worked. They have mm. always like working individual family farms have always been an aberration. The farms that have have really succeeded in the course of history are more like what we had um, like here in the Americas before before the Europeans invaded. We had sort of communal farming that had a lot more sustainability because it, did, it had fewer points of failure and, and a lot more uh, a lot more uh, diversity in the system. And um, you know, and I, as I go on, I think, you know, it's software, large software projects are very similar to that. They are system, you know, they're large, complex systems where you absolutely have to take into account the 
you know, the, the human part of that social socio-technical system. I love that, yep. uh, that metaphor, the, the farming gardening thing. I think that's uh, really powerful. I'm going to thank you for the podcast recommendation as well. That's, uh, yeah, for sure. That's, uh, so I you, was wondering, yeah, no, go ahead. No, I just, I was reading something yesterday. I forget the name of the island. It's one of the most remotest islands in the world. I think it's technically part of the British territory. There's like a population of 200 people. And they've, you know, maybe a couple times a year, a, a ship comes to deliver some goods and oh. things like flour, fuel, et cetera, um, like cotton for fabric and stuff. And um, it's, they all, everyone on the island essentially takes turns farming. doesn't matter what occupation you are. Everyone shares in that. And kind of, you, you mentioned in communal farming reminded me that this is some of the very limited resources so far away that they don't have much contact with people. Um, yet there's this like this just this inherent like, OK, we're all in it together. We got to survive together. We're all going to share in the duties. And so they've been surprisingly successful for a couple of centuries on their own. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. Some of this history like like that of of um, indigenous farming, uh, the U.S. and Canada have have, you know, in, in their histories have sometimes like deliberately broken up um indigenous communal farms because they were outperforming their <laughs> their like homesteader farm uh you know the homesteader farms that were that were over the next hill so much so you know so profoundly that wow. it was like well this can't this can't stand um you know and so <laughs> i think there are some useful lessons there we 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 without even thinking about it i think we bring up a lot of these kinds of metaphors in how we think about how we work um in particularly, particularly about like just the very sort of individualist um, model of what a software developer is su supposed to be, and this sort of individual hero, this passionate, driven individual hero cowboy, and that's not how sustainable systems are maintained. It's just not. I think that's pretty fair. Um... And so speaking of that kind of like bringing it up above, like just the individual coding day to day and around process, are you in this talk, you've gone through like different levels of uh, feedback loops, like from the lines of code to the unit test of the unit to, you know, integration tests to, you know, bring the REPLs in, et cetera. At the higher levels of like just determining process, determining um, requirements, Mm -hmm. um, I, you had a really good quote in, in your talk about the fact that the minute you hit Jira uh, and you make sure that your business people look at Jira, the game is over pretty much. It's like this is this is not going to be a good feedback loop. It's going to take right. a long time. Yeah, particularly, the, you know, so so like and I and I have to give um, I have to give Jessica credit for for that piece, too. Um, she yeah. really made that point, which is mm -hmm. that if you know, one of your most important feedback loops, of course, is what are you getting from your customers? Um, what are they what are they trying to tell you? And if your feedback loop for what are your customers trying to tell you is enough customers have trouble with a feature that they reported enough times that your that your customer support people make a ticket about it and then you know and then they bring it up in the next in the next sprint planning, um, that's a really long, lossy feedback loop. Yep, uh, sure. And one of the things that I really like to encourage developers to do, if they haven't already, is go out of their way to make friends with folks on the support team. Um, if you have the opportunity, shadow them or you know work with them for, for a few days. Some companies, I really like, like it when I see companies that as part of the onboarding have developers work with, um, with their support people for a while and you know, develop those actual like, in, like person to person lines of communication because our job isn't just building better feedback loops for our coding in our coding tools. It's not just about, oh, how can I make my, my VS code, you know, 2% more efficient um, in, you know, in process. It's, it's about building these higher level feedback loops. And one of those is establishing conversations with the people in customer support, establishing conversations with the people in sales. Um, 
is really important. And I think it's something that we so often just assume that the model is going to be sort of developers on this side, salespeople over here with largely divergent um, values. And, and they're sort of, you know, basically clashing in, you know, and the field of battle is JIRA. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> not mine, his, theirs, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Who is it? Yeah. Who's working on this? You know, and I, yeah. I had I had a coaching client recently who was like, okay, so I'm most I'm I'm the person I'm tapped to develop this whole new feature set that we're currently selling to our existing clients. Like we're going to have this feature, and so, um, and I, you know, and he was saying that I'm I my job is to develop this, and I was like, what's the name of the salesperson who's selling this to your clients? Because because either that salesperson becomes your new best friend, right? Um. Or they're going to become kind of your enemy. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if the communication is sporadic. Right. You know, you're, I'm doing what now? This doesn't work anymore. We're changing the way we do X. And right. I have 10 it's customers can't upgrade. Like sometimes it's important yeah. to have that buffer of like they need to, you know, the, to, for the like the product manager and your your team leads, you know, to kind of have some some management buffer space there so that you don't have somebody breathing down your neck and dictating your every move. But in the, on the flip side, when when we're talking about something where like you're kind of developing this new feature to, you know, to suit your existing clients, um, you need to work closely with the person who represents those clients needs and who's telling them that, you know, this is what we can do and this is what we can't do. You know, and a lot of times what what actually stems from those conversations, you know, I think people assume that it's going to be um, that it's it's going to be kind of antagonistic. But a lot of times what stems from those is like is discovering, oh, we actually don't need as much as we thought we did. Like, you know, they'll you, you know, you'll be like, oh, well, I can give you this spreadsheet. And they're like, oh, that's all I need. Mm -hmm. um, that's good enough. Good enough for now. You know, as long as you can give me something. So those can be really valuable um, uh, feedback loops. Yeah, I think it was Jessica that's. Sorry, I think it was Jessica that said that uh, the spreadsheets like the ultimate business user feedback loop or something along those lines because they can yeah. just quickly iterate and change data and look around at data, experiment with the data they get in their right. own thinking. I mean, those conversations can also lead to uh, things like, oh, I should be logging this or, you know, next time this occurs, um, I'll have this information ready. Like, I guess you gain empathy for what the customer support person is experiencing, right. what information they had to report back to the actual user. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's also important to have empathy for what your business people are looking at. You know, they have their own tools that they're using to understand the business. And I think one of our jobs is to push back when they say, can you get me a report that will, t that will tell me this and to say no. But what I can do is I can, I can, um, I can make sure that we feed the information that you need into our existing business intelligence tools, or I can make sure that you can get a CSV anytime you need it and you can do whatever report you want um, in Excel. And, you know, Excel is like one of the ultimate rebels. It's wonderful. And empowering the business to get developers out of the critical chain of like, just like business pivots, you know, business um, intelligence is another way that we support the feedback loops that we're embedded in. For sure, for sure. You, you mentioned Excel, and this is this is a tangent, but I just wanted to point out a comment um, that Chris Burster made on the on the live chat uh, around Jupyter Notebooks and Python world, which I, I completely agree because, I mean, to me, when I started using Jupyter, the first time I was using it was actually not with Python, but it was with Scala, and it was for teaching a large class of students. Um, so, all, you know, I did all the exercises, et cetera, and marked down in Scala in, in the Jupyter Notebook, and then everyone could just check out the notebook with the exercises information and then along in the class, perform the exercises and then execute their code. And just that whole feedback cycle um, for development and visualization in general, but for teaching others and having a notebook environment to meet like the, that was revolutionary in my mind, at least um, to be able to teach students. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, that was actually um, it was a piece that we dropped from the talk that we did uh, just for time. But it was absolutely one of it's it's one of my bullet points of like these. This is an example of a great feedback loop is Jupyter notebooks and things like them. Yeah, especially if you're good at analyzing data through Python. You know, I was using it to pull in data and generate statistics on it, even from our recruiting. You know, to be able to keep track of how we were doing things. 
And it was just a beautiful thing to do. You could easily, you know, plot graphs, change the way you're looking at the data, throw it in like a SQL type database and ask questions. Just a nice way of analyzing that, writing a lot of programs, you know, without yeah. having to support them later. Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes those questions are one-off questions that you won't need to ask over and over again. So going through the development effort to do that just for one thing that might not happen again. Yes. could be a lot of energy wasted. I believe that's one of the great lessons of, of REPLs. You know, the, the, the whole idea of this talk was let's, let's, let's say for the, for the sake of argument that a REPL is a pretty much perfect feedback loop for the, for the level that it's at. What can mm -hmm. we learn? You know, what can we learn about feedback loops um, from that? And I think one of the really important pieces is lossiness. It's, it's lossy. It's, um, you know, we have, a, we have a temporary memory, we have a temporary scrollback buffer, we have a temporary, you know, m uh, history of commands that we can up arrow through, and we have some state that we build up over the course of that, that REPL session, variables and whatnot. But at the end of the day, we can always throw it away. Um, and we will throw it away, and we'll start fresh. And that's actually really powerful. One, part of, part of um, being able to arrive at solutions is knowing that we can scribble down, you know, notes along the way that we're not going to have to keep and having environments where we can do kind of lossy exploration. Um, and, you know, one of the points that we like to make is that the REPL in particular is very private and we don't think about this much as a, as a value in programming and like, I mean, for me, I'm, I've always been a pretty big advocate of like pair programming and group programming, but there is value to sometimes having an environment where you can just do stupid stuff. <laughs> you are a little embarrassed to try. Um, Haven't and, done before. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and just not, you know, be, look completely incompetent. And, you know, the REPL is like Vegas for that. You know, what, what you do there is safe. <laughs> That's true. And you're not committing this code. You know, you mm -hmm. might arrive at some code that, that you can then transfer into code that you commit, but you're not committing what goes in there. Um, and I think there are all these, you know, it's, it's important to find sort of gradations along this continuum from total lossiness to, you know, kept until the end of time. You know, we talked about Jupyter notebooks. That's sort of a midpoint. It's, it's, not, yeah. as, it's not as rigid as code that we maintain and refactor for the main application, but it's also not as lossy, not as immediately lossy as a REPL session. You know, it's something that we actually may share with other people. We may transfer to other people. And so it's somewhere in the middle there. And having, being able to choose along that continuum instead of just saying everything we do is captured forever uh, is really powerful. There's so many quotes from this, this podcast today that I, you know, I'm going to list and attribute you and use just a, you know, the field of battle is Jira. I, I just love that. Absolutely, <laughs> I mean, that captures so much in one, in one sentence about what's wrong with how kind of how large teams develop products. Yep. I, I think for me, that's one of the largest struggles is when I, you know, when I'm on a small team, it's much easier to practice some of these concepts and things because just by the very nature of being small and, less communication overhead, you're, you're getting more feedback. The, the feedback loop is tighter just by definition. As the teams get larger, it gets, and you have multiple personalities and politics and other things, it gets harder and harder for people to align on incentives and goals and, and kind of do this, um, you know, turtles all the way sort of approach. Um, it's fulfilling when you can do it. It just gets challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's why you, you mentioned like in that talk about REPL nature, like Buddha nature, you know, like exactly. thinking about letting as many layers of the business gain access to things in a way that they can query and interrogate and ask questions of it, get answers, have a conversation, as you were mentioning, yeah. with your code. Ultimately, um, your data. I think it's useful yeah. to think of any of these feedback loops as conversations. Yeah, uh, and, and I think one of the reasons it's useful to think of them that way is because it's useful to think about, okay, what is the pace of this particular conversation? Um, one thing that is, I think is important to, to note when talking about feedback loops is that I think it's, it's popular in software circles to say, okay, here's a, good, here's a thing that we've decided is good, 
So now we have to maximize it. Now we have to accelerate it. Now we have to, um, to turn the, the dial up as, as far as it can go. And I think there's a naive view of feedback loops where we say, okay, feedback loops are good. Therefore, we must make them as fast as possible. And that's not actually what I'm saying here. And mm -hmm. I think that's actually, that can be detrimental. What we want to do is we want to identify the natural pace of the loop that we're thinking about right now, the loop that we're working in and focusing on the natural kind of conversational pace, which is like, how fast do we form the next question? So, you know, if, if you have to, you know, if you have to punch your program on a bunch of, on a stack of cards and you have to wait two weeks until you get to run it again, you're probably going to come up with six dozen different questions about, you know, what you could try next in the space of the time that you get to try one question. And that's clearly too slow of, yep. of a rate. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, speaking of metaphors, um, uh, Jess has this great metaphor of the, uh, the shower adjustment cycle at, a, at an unfamiliar hotel uh, where, <laughs> where, you know, it's you're great. trying to get the, the shower temperature right. And so, you know, you turn it a little, it's still too cold. You turn it a little, it's still too cold. You turn it a little, it's still too cold. Suddenly, ah, it's too hot, right? Um, <laughs> because you're not actually working at the conversational pace of that particular feedback loop. Like you haven't given it time to actually <laughs> produce feedback in all those little adjustments. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, my father used to have boats <laughs> and um, he would have a big old, you know, 27 foot uh, engine boat. And when you take those things out and you said, here, son, try to drive. Okay, I'm gonna go left, that's funny. not going left, not going, so we're going left. It's the same thing, it's like this delay of like eight seconds until you even know that you've done the correction right. you need to do. If you're, wait, if you're waiting for your nerve endings to tell you it's too late by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. I actually, I, my, my personal metaphor for this, which I'll bring up because you brought up the boat one, is is like uh, ages ago in another life, I was taking um, flight, flight lessons. Cool, and, yeah. Um, you know, one day I'm up with my instructor in the back seat, uh, back seat, because it was a sailplane, and, um, you know, so the instructor's back there and, and he can feel everything that I'm doing through his controls because they're all linked. Um, and I was feeling like I was having a really super good day because I was just like on top of things. Like I was feeling every little like movement of the plane, every little wind gust. And I was just adjusting and adjusting and adjusting, you know. And finally, my, I hear from the back, like, knock, like settle down. Because um, he's feeling like all these little <laughs> micro adjustments that I'm making. And none of them really mattered. Like none of them actually mattered to the the flying of the aircraft i was just sort of um convincing myself that all of these little micro instantaneous micro adjustments uh were important and they weren't mm -hmm. and you know uh there's a lot of places where that applies in software uh one of the ones that always comes to mind for me is a b testing it's it's which is one of those things that can be super useful but it can also be a thing where you get get just a whole lot you can ask a whole lot of questions and get a whole lot of hard data answers really fast that mean absolutely nothing for your business um <laughs> but boy their data yep yeah that's an interesting segue into uh you know curious to hear more of your, your thoughts on you know continuous deployment feature flags and you know ab testing kind of sort of made me think about that how you run those experiments in a safe way um, but you can gather a lot of useful information doing that. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is I'm in favor. Like this is this is one of the ways that we bring our larger development cycles into into the 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 sort of appropriate pacing, we'll call it. You know, not not fast as possible, but appropriate pacing to the kinds of decisions that we're making and the questions that we're asking. Is we get our de continuous integration, we get our you know, sort it out, we get our continuous deployment sorted out, and we give ourselves the ability to get stuff, get code into production without breaking things and with that, you know, and, and gradually turn it on for people. Um, yeah, that's just, I think that's essential to staying in a healthy feedback loop at that level. Okay, cool. Do you have any other questions on your end, Sujan? Um, I mean, this is not, I don't go on forever. It's something you can talk about forever. Cause again, it's, just, it's so yes. fundamental that everything we do, right. It's beyond just programming. And again, I, mm -hmm. I, I try to, you know, as a parent, right. You try to 
I think feedback loops with your, your child, for example, are really important just when they're learning, when you're seeing how they react to things. And it's, it's interesting, right? They, they very quickly react to what you say. So you're getting instant feedback on like, oh, am I performing well as a parent or not? Or am I saying yeah. something that they fear or they, they got hurt by or they're really happy by? Um, so I think it's an int- it's a interesting playground and experiment. At the same time, it has serious repercussions because you're like, you know, affecting this other other person, this creature. Um, but I, again, I'm just at a loss as to why more schools, universities and don't teach this way. And I, I think it's a huge gap. And it's like, OK, colleges in the United States is super, super expensive. But there and there's a lot of times it's not the optimal way. I would say probably most of the times it's not the optimal way to learn certain subjects. And I found myself, you know, certain online courses and things where uh, the professor is teaching because they purely love to teach. It's not something they have to do so they can get research dollars in or grant money in. Um, I learn much more effectively that way because the teacher's passionate about it. Um, they approach it very differently. They're not beholden to following a certain structure that the university forces them to follow. And um, I think there's so much improvement that could be done to unleash um, this kind of stuff on the masses if people just change how they teach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, my my primary business is uh, making videos and courses for programmers, you know, towards the end of, you know, towards the goal of helping them kind of level up their practice. And when when I talk to people about like, how do you how to craft training material? I think that one of the first things that I always talk about is contextualize, contextualize, contextualize. You know, I think I think that's the thing that, that the vast majority of probably any, probably in any field, but certainly in develop, software development, I think is the vast majority of it is, is lacking is just contextualization. It's just not, you know, not just here is what you can do, not just here is how you can do, but, you know, first let's step back, contextualize the problem. Where is this appropriate? Where does this, yeah. where does this matter? And why? That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel that way a lot with things like math of all, I mean, math can be very well applied for solving problems, but everyone teaches it so academically and dry. And I know my one of my daughters has really struggled through Algebra 2. And when I'm looking at the guides, I'm like, they really don't give you an idea why you need to know these things at all. It's just thing, 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 quiz, you know? Yeah. Maybe you could do this to solve this kind of problem. Let's break it down. Let's see why this approach would work. Maybe this other approach would work better. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't get taught that way. Um, you know, early on with programming, back when I was a kid kid, they had, I'm an old, old now, but uh, <laughs> the kid kid, it was uh, like people came up with Logo, you know, because mm-hmm. Logo was a REPL that drew things with a turtle. Yes. You know, yes. and it was a, a very early, in, you know, educational uh, REPL, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I always liked that. I always liked the fact that you could experiment with languages by asking them questions as a kid because you have a very limited language to work with mm-hmm. and you get it to do stuff. And I know they've tried doing that with blocks and other things since. And I think some of the more uh, progressive teachers of you know electronics or such will use those kinds of features. But right. uh, it'd just be nice to see my, this in more places. My introduction to programming, believe it or not, was my sixth grade social studies teacher of mm-hmm. all people. We had a, a bunch of TRS-80s in the classroom and he would program in basic quizzes and ways for us to learn the concepts and stuff he was teaching about was like Egypt and other countries mm. at the time. Oh, wow. um, and he would do like, you know, he'd have these ASCII art animations. They're like these little mini role-playing, you answer a question and you get to the next thing and I'm like, okay. And he like used programming and that he would kind of show us the code to teach these concepts. So like it was a, it wasn't dry. It wasn't like, Hey, I'm learning, I'm learning code just to like print out a bunch of letters or numbers in a for loop. It's like, okay, someone coded something to actually teach something completely different that had nothing to do with coding. Mm-hmm. And that, that connection was so powerful. It's like, I always find that pretty novel. Usually most people, I think their introduction to program, maybe like video games or an elder sibling or, you know, they're reading, not your social studies teacher. <laughs> no, that's, that's really, that's very cool that you had that experience. Yes. Yeah. You know, and this kind of brings it um, almost full circle to something we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is some of these early mainframe systems that enabled um, a lot of people to to learn how to code and and to experience kind of an early REPL. They were not pitched at the, the software engineering community. They were they existed 
as part of educational systems. They exist. They were created for college students and then high school students. You know, things like the the, the Dartmouth timesharing system and the Plato system um, in Illinois, which was incredibly successful. They were built to enable kids to learn, and as a side effect, they also be, were incredibly rich interactive programming environments, and. You know, they were also pitched to to enable people to solve real problems. You know, the the the, the DTSS, which I talked about in that in that talk, the Dartmouth time time sharing system, where so many people learned Basic, and that well, which Basic was created for, um, something like eighty percent of the student body was using it, and that it wasn't like the computer science student body. And this is like nineteen seventy two. You know, um, most of the student body was using it to like do their homework and, and stuff like that. Not to cheat on their homework, but like as part. of <laughs> You know exactly what you're sure. talking about. Like, here's a here's a problem that has to do with social studies. Here's you know uh, an example that comes up is like like um, population growth calculations. Um, I have this this wonderful little little pamphlet that was that was written back then to introduce the basic programming language. And unlike programming guides that you see today, where it's like here's how you can add integers, it's like let's talk about population growth. How might we do some calculations about population growth, which is this big issue that people are talking about right now? And um, it contextualizes it like immediately from the first couple of pages. It contextualizes here's why we might do this stuff um, from you know from a very deliberate point of view of we want to create digital citizens. We want to create people you know citizens who are empowered to solve uh, the to participate in solving the problems of the day. And I think it would be nice to see more of that. For sure. Very well said. So uh, as kind of a fall, uh, wrap up here, so Graceful Dev is your website. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the main way to find you. You've got- uh, You can also find me at avdi.codes. That's kind of more of my like personal, um, you know, all the consulting and stuff that I do. But uh, mm -hmm. but my, my biggest output is Graceful Dev. Are you going to any of the conferences uh, coming up? Uh, I don't have any scheduled right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it was an honor to have you at ours. So, I, and I, I understand you and Jessica drove, Jessica drove back and forth. Is that true? Or is it just the um, way back? Uh, we drove back together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I had reason to be in Pennsylvania already um, and I had mm -hmm. driven there. So yeah, we drove back across country. Yeah. She is really, really smart and fun to talk to too. So that must've been a great ride. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, we actually, um, I'm trying to remember where we posted it. We, we, we had one conversation that we, we recorded on the way. Oh, cool. Um, and I think, <laughs> it was, I, I think we, we posted the recording on our Patreon. I figured you would do that. Yeah. I figured you would have a recording of that. Because <laughs> the last two talks, the two talks you've had with us were both of you talking together, and they were both mm -hmm. fantastic. All right, Avdi Grimm, it's been so nice to talk to you today on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. And yeah, and your talk is wonderful, and uh, keep doing great stuff in the community. We love it. Thank you so much. It's been great. All right. Take care. Take care. You too. Mm -hmm.